Hi, everyone. Today is your questions and our answers. This is episode 82 of Get Your Tech On, our show in all things Doxis. I'm Brady Volt, founder of Nimble This and the Volt Firm. Back with us again is John Downey, Senior Technical Leader at Cisco Systems. John, welcome back. Tell us where you've been. So 82 episodes, I'm like, I just did the math. That's like seven years. <laughs> if we do one every month. So yeah, it's been over seven years. Um, forgot about two of the years because of COVID. Um, I just got back from Germany, so it was my first international trip in almost three years. I was at the Anga Anga show, however you pronounce it, in uh, Cologne, or in pronounce in Deutsch, uh, what is it, Köln, Köln, Germany. Um, so it, w- it was a good trip. No mask requirements flying over, just mask requirements and trains and stuff. Uh, and then we had to get tested before we came back. So <laughs> luckily, I tested negative. You and I was passed able to your test. <laughs> Yeah, I passed my test. I had to slip an extra $50, but I passed my test. <laughs> it was worth it. Glad to have you. Back. I'm like, talk about conspiracy theory. It's like, it could be the hospitality industry. It's like, you know what? Hold all the visitors here as long as you can. Two-year two year quarantine, two-week quarantine would be good. Yeah, like get, get some work out of you maybe while you're over there. Yeah, it would generate more uh, money for the hospitality industry, you know, hotels and everything. Yes. So so what'd you do in the like, Overall, it was good. Uh, we didn't have a booth there. I don't know if you have the picture I sent you. I yeah, don't know well, actually, I heard you had kind of a, a a nice booth, kind of a, a good food booth or something, right? So we can pull up that yeah, picture. Yeah, yeah. People were loving that booth. Everyone was there flocking during lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> that's the you know that's a, the best booth to have as a food booth because you're you're bound to get some people coming around and have some nice booth there. So it says Cisco Partners Germany on the side of the looks like a food truck there. Yeah. So you guys actually sponsored a food truck. That's awesome. <laughs> we, I wouldn't say we sponsored a food truck, but that food truck happened to have our sign on. I'm like, oh, looks like a photo op. <laughs> no, so we didn't have a booth there. You know, the European market is very much uh, fiber focused. It's always been fiber focused. And there's cable strewn throughout, but it's pawn wherever they can go, which is where U.S. would be going as well if we didn't have so much coax deployed everywhere, right? Uh, and we're still milking that cow as long as we can. Yes. And that's why Doxis 4.0 is, you know, coming out. The uh, That European market is so much more fiber, fiber to the home. Uh, there is some coax there, like I said. But Cisco decided not to have a booth there this year. And probably because we haven't had a, they didn't have a show for two years. So it's hard to plan for something that keeps getting canceled or postponed or whatever. Uh but me and Jason Miller went out there to meet some customers, walk around, see what's going on, uh, see some old faces. It was nice to, what you call, press the flesh, right? Shake actual hands, talk to people in person. Uh, so it was good. And, and the beer is always good, too. <laughs> <laughs> it is a different show. I'm uh, hopefully you know looking forward to that same show next year. And uh, I'll be back in attendance in, in full Full spirit. So, um, yeah. so again, uh, today we're going to be covering questions and answers. Our our first question that we have up um, comes in from one of our listeners on Diplex filters, and he says, "Hi Brady, I work at an internet service provider that is running Doxis three one on legacy equipment. <laughs> Many operators are, but they have forty megahertz Diplex filters." And he says, "We're experiencing issues with upstream SNR variants at thirty six point eight megahertz. We know it's because of the forty megahertz Diplex filter." that are causing issues with the modems that are talking back that close to the cutoff of the filter. My question is, do you know of products um, that are set up or solutions that may help? I know the best solution is to upgrade to 85 megahertz diplex filters. Unfortunately, those filters are built and not upgradable, or they're built into the amplifiers and not upgradable. Uh, We're not ready for a plant upgrade, so we're trying to to find a way to make these work without upstream SNR variants. I think they have poor upstream SNR at that high frequency. Thanks in advance for any thoughts or insight you have on this, Timothy P. So they have uh, they have issues with diplex filters. And I thought, John, you know, maybe we'd first even, we'd just open up and talk a little bit about um, diplex filters. They're in all of our RF amplifiers. So, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll tackle that first. They're not just in amplifiers, right? They could be step attenuators, uh, taps with equalization, ash has a cutoff, 
the fiber it's node not, itself that has them. Even cable yeah, modems have has at least one, bars. right? Yeah, fiber node has at least one where the RF is, not on the optical side, but on the RF side. Um, so yeah, you have a lot of devices, house amps. You have a lot of devices in the plant that could be contributing to group delay and and all these problems with roll-off, not just the uh, MER, SNR, but group delay, right? Which could be creating low MER, SNR. Right. Uh, and it just occurred to me, he mentioned a 3-1 system. So I didn't think about this when you and I were talking earlier, but there's a couple of solutions to that. Could be, if you have a narrow carrier, they usually put the low end. A smaller narrow carrier will have less group delay because it's not as much bandwidth, right? Spectrum. You can put the narrow carrier at the high end, and because the 3.2 is 3 dB higher than a 6.4, you already gain 3 dB more MER. And if you go narrower, you have less group delay in that narrower carrier. Maybe when you that say would narrow work. carrier, you're referring to like a set-top box return or yes. these type of carriers yes. that would normally we put at very low frequencies because they punch through the noise. Um, yep. But we're kind and of shifting the dynamics now and saying, well, just put that at the higher frequency where your um, diplex filter and maybe it's is. only running and maybe it's only running 16 qualm because it is a set top box signaling and you don't really need any throughput from it you just need it for control traffic correct um then i thought he said three one does that mean he wants it to run ofdma so the solution to that could be you run ofdma from wherever you're starting 24 27 all the way to 42 but from 40 to 42 you can do an override iuc so you can say, all right, you know what? Between that frequency, I know it's going to be bad, but I don't want to eliminate it because I can squeeze out a little bit of speed from it. So let's run a 16 qualm just in that two megahertz. Now you call that override. I've also heard that called an exception band, not to be confused with an exclusion band, but exception band is, you know, we'll run say 1024 qualm all the way up to like the higher frequencies you're saying. And then we'll, yep. in those higher frequencies where we know we have the diplex filter, roll off, group delay, um, we'll, for the OFDMA channel, the exclusion band, the override band, um, we're going to run that at a lower modulation, like maybe 256 qualm, uh, not exclusion, exception. yeah, exception band, 256 qualm, 64 qualm. We can run a very low order modulation in that OFDMA yep. channel. And Everyone will be very happy then because where it's where we don't have the diplex filter, we can run at high order modulations in OFDMA where we have the diplex filter using um, the exception band or what, what's you, the override? What override. Did you, override. Band. Override. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and think about it if you didn't do the override and just that amount of spectrum was reported low MER, the entire block would be changed modulation just because that little Correct. bit of spectrum. Yeah, all so you don't want that little bit of spectrum them. to dictate everything. Yeah. So you say, let's do an override. 16 qualm has a really good low MER threshold, so it'll work almost with no problem. Uh, and then I can still run higher modulation in the lower band of that OFDMA block. Yeah. So let me just pull up the slides here again so people understand. If it, just in case you've not seen diplex filters before, I have a picture on the left-hand side here of some plug-in diplex filters. So um, as Timothy mentioned, his diplex filters were not replaceable. And then that was very common with all the you know, older amplifiers we have. We are making, most of the vendors today are making replaceable diplex filters, which I'm showing two here so that you can see the pins that let you plug them in. That's a dime. So that gives you kind of the idea of what the size are. And as John said, um, normally we have two diplex filters in all of our RF amplifiers. You have one on the input and one on the output. And this separates our return from our forward. So on the high side, this amplifies our downstream. And on the low input side, this amplifies our upstream. So our diplex filters are really separating our upstream from our downstream side. And, and we have what's called a crossover region in here. And this is showing us our, you know, our 40 megahertz or 42 megahertz cutoff for our upstream. And then our, our 52 or 54 cutoff for our downstream depends on exactly where that diplex filter sits. So the channel, the challenge that Timothy's running into is he's running a, a upstream DOCSIS channel very close to this roll-off region, and that's causing poor performance on his SNR as he gets right into this roll-off region on the upstream. And anyone who runs a DOCSIS channel really close to this upstream is going to have problems. And, and I like what John is suggesting with OFDMA. If we run OFDMA up into this roll-off region here, the lower part of the OFDMA, we can run at a pretty high modulation order, and then we can use the um, uh, 
as we were discussing, we can we can drop some of the higher portion, the higher frequency spectrum of the OFDMA subcarriers to a lower modulation. So our low frequency OFDMA will run at a high modulation, and the high frequency the um, these subcarriers right in this roll roll off will run at a lower order modulation if we use that exclusion band or again as John called what do you call that again John override override so band. exception band or override yep. so um, and then gra- visually what uh, what actually causes the low SNR we can see here um, generally when you run a doxis channel into that uh, that that diplex filter band it's going to cause roll off and that's going to cause a problem with the, K, the uh, CMTS to actually demodulate that channel, and that's where you get your low SNR. So um, uh, in addition to the other things that we, we talked about, um, if you were to turn on pre-equalization, the cable modem can compensate for that. And, and this is like one of, one of the, our classic slides that we always show when we talk about enabling pre-equalization in the CMTS. Uh, the cable modem will pre-compensate for that, and then you can end up with a flat... Uh, spectrum, even in the presence of the the cable uh, of the diplex filter. So, so one of our solutions that we recommend is um, so Timothy, if you're not currently running pre-equalization on your CMTS, that would be like the number one recommendation to do is to turn on pre-equalization. It can compensate for a lot of roll off, a lot of um, group delay issues that you would have by running so close to the diplex filter. That would be the number one recommendation. The number two recommendation would be, of course, to move that SEQAM channel a little lower in frequency to get it away from the diplex filter. And I like John's other suggestions. If, if you are in a lower band running your set-top boxes there, you could kind of revert switch those out with your DOCSIS channels. Um, move your OFDMA channel up to there. Um, replace your diplex filters would be another one. And then the long run is uh, ideally get rid of those uh, 40 or 42 megahertz diplex filters and upgrade to an 85 or a long-term 204 megahertz return. Other thoughts so you have, John? I, if you go back a slide, ironically, I remember, I think I provided those pictures a long, long time ago when I started getting the pre-Q and it turned out what you're seeing there is actually the filter in the modem. I had no diplex filter in my lab. <laughs> so, so, so this is basically was, what's happening with him. Or, or, yeah, in this, the modem. Yeah, in the modem itself. Yes. Because the modem has a filter too. Yep. Yeah. So these pictures have been used over and over and over <laughs> again. <laughs> and if you look at the the, the y axis, uh, it's like 20, 30 dB of tilt, right? Zero to like minus thirty or yeah, that's ten. Every radical is like ten dB. Isn't it? Well, no, that is forty dB of tilt. So there's t- twenty <laughs> dB. Yeah, that's twenty five dB of tilt. That's yeah. Oh, 30. No, you're right. 30 dB of tilt. Oh, that is a lot of tilt. So it is amazing how much the pre-equalizer is able to compensate. Yeah. And that's just a 6.4 megahertz channel width. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. So those are, those are the main solutions. I mean, you're pretty limited um, when you're running up against a diplex filter with what you can do. Pre-equalization is um, probably your best choice unless you're going to start moving channels around. I, I think that's what you got. Anything yeah. else, John? I mean, another thing people don't realize is diplex filter crossover or rejection area is the rule of thumb is about 25% rejection area on the highest frequency of your upstream. So 42 megahertz, 25% will be 10 megahertz, 42 to 52. But when you get to 85, 25% of 85 is going to be like at least 20 megahertz. When we start doing 204, 25%, one fourth of 200 is 50 so it's a 204-254 split. So when we start talking about DOCSIS 4.0, uh, extended spectrum DOCSIS, trying to do a 396 upstream, that's 400 megahertz. One quarter of that is 100. So now you got a 400-500 split. That's a lot of spectrum you lose to keep the fidelity of that diplex filter proper. You know, So it's just that's why people were looking at FDX. There is no diplex filter in FDX comes with its own challenges there's trade-offs yeah, with course. every technology we have of course yeah. of course all right so um our next question that comes in is from renee renee says uh just want to send a message to show my appreciation of the content you've put up i'm an escalation field tech primarily dealing with doxis 3.1 now and have 
really broadened and deepened my understanding by listening to your podcast. So thanks, Renee. Um, there are tons of observations I've made over the years that I'm trying to understand. One observation I've seen time and time again is subscriber A with upstream problems that is off the same tap as subscriber B who has really poor downstream RX or SNR. These types of issues seem to escape bigger detection from the CMTS and are more local. If you have any time to cover this topic or respond and shed light on what the dynamics there, I would pretty much, I would really, I'd very much appreciate it. Um, so, I, you know, we see this a lot actually in, in proactive network maintenance where one subscriber has impairments, particularly in their home, and they're actually impacting another subscriber. And so I, I drew this on the right-hand side of the map here. And if you're listening to audio, um, what we're seeing on the map are, are two subscribers who are showing up red modems that are they're impacted uh, either in the downstream or the upstream, and they're off the, the same mainline tap, off the, you know, different ports of the mainline tap. They show up on the plant map as, as red modems um, when all the other modems around them you know, are maybe in a green state or a yellow state. And generally when we troubleshoot these, we find out that it's just one subscriber's home that's severely impacting the other subscriber's home. You go in, we do you know, troubleshoot that, it's normally faulty wiring, a reverse splitter, um, maybe a, a, you know, sometimes I find like someone had a satellite dish installed and so that satellite dish um, got connected into their cable plant wiring and then that will impact the other subscriber's home. And so these are very, very common scenarios, and I'm glad Renee asked the question because I, I think it's worth covering a little bit more. And, uh, and it, it all comes down into to tap port isolation, which we've, we've kind of indicated here. And, and um, John, you kind of went a little bit more into depth into this, so I'll, I'll let you talk a little bit to this slide. Yeah, if, I, call, if you want to. I, I call it a port or a spigot. <laughs> spigot <laughs> is like a water spigot, but I mean, some people call them spigots. Um, so th those tap ports have port-to-port -port isolation, but you need to know the internal workings of the tap to understand the numbers. So two spigots or ports side by side might be off the same internal splitter inside that tap. And let's just say for a sake of argument that port-to-port -port isolation is about 20 dB. Now port-to-port -port isolation really is dictated by the common port 75-ohm match. It's always based on that. So let's say it's 20 dB. Now, if you go back to that picture and you look at the loss from port A to port D, you'd have to go through one splitter, that's three and a half dB loss, port to port isolation on that primary splitter in the tap, so that's 20 dB, and then another three and a half dB of loss before you come out the other spigot. Yep. So that'd be 27 dB of port to port isolation from A to D. But from A to B, you only have 20 dB of isolation. So you easily could have problems port to port, depending on how it's internally wired up. Um, and I just thought about this as well. It's going to get worse, I think. We call it adjacent device interference. Mm -hmm. When we start transmitting higher frequency and higher power. So when we go DOCSIS 3.1, oh, yes. if we go to 204, <laughs> we're going to have frequencies being transmitted that have never been transmitted before from a house at levels that could be extremely high. So those now, and I know RF is very frequency sensitive, meaning I could have perfect match 75 ohm return loss at 42 megahertz, but what happens if I start transmitting at 85 megahertz? Am I gonna have the same return loss? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I have a kink in the cable, which is more frequency sensitive at 85 or 204. So I think we're going to have some other gremlins pop up when we start implementing 3.1 at higher frequencies and this port-to-port -port isolation where the signal bleeds over from one house to another. Yeah, you bring It's up really bad in, in, in the house itself and not so bad from house to house. But as you mentioned, it could be house to house. Yeah, you, and you bring up an interest, interesting port because as we look at the slide here, um, you know, we, we say that... Uh, so on, on the bottom right-hand side of the slide, and for those of you in audio, I'll talk you through it, we're, we're looking at um, basically two splitters. You know, we can think of a, a four-port tap as having two splitters inside. Um, ports 
A and B are off that same splitter, and you talk about the isolation only being 20 dB between them. So that's, you know, maybe one subscriber off of port A, that's the subscriber that's having lots of impairments, but he's impacting the subscriber off of port B. Um, that That's kind of the challenge there. And we and as you're talking about DOCSIS 3.1 having you know more increased noise, we we know from lots and lots of empirical data that noise. If you have a lot of noise in a plant, that can impact a subscribers upstream. Um, so so I think it'll be interesting to see as, as you're saying if like if say subscriber on port B has a DOCSIS 3.0 modem as we extend the spectrum. They transmit a lot of noise. Will that impact subscriber on port A? I don't know, but it'll be a, an interesting use case. Um, getting back to your Renee's challenge here, um, and what we see when subscriber A is is impacting subscriber B, um, you know that's already happening today, where that limited isolation between port A and port B, or the limited isolation between port C and port D. Um, happens all the time, right? We have a subscriber that has lots of noise or lots of impairments in their house and that's that's impacting their neighbor. So the, you know the way you the way you handle this is you can go out to the tap or to the, to the subscriber's home. You have to clean up the impairments on subscriber's B home so they stop impacting subscriber's A A's home. Um you get a little bit more isolation, and John, I think you did the math because you you have um, 3.5 dB more isolation between the that tap that splits the two ports. Um, so that gives you what'd you say, like 27 dB of isolation between port A and port C, or between port A and port D. But um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not a huge amount more isolation, so you you still get um, a little bit more isolation between different taps, right? Well, and and, and another thought was let's say. On a, unusually on low value taps, modems are transmitting low power. And if I had uh, at my disposal step attenuators and you put it on port A, and suppose the modem was only transmitting 35, and you put a 9 dB step attenuator, so now that modem has to transmit uh, 40, uh, what is it, 40, uh, 44. So it's still well within its range of power. Uh, that extra 9 dB of loss created more port-to-port isolation. Correct. Or the other way you could do it is you could remove subscriber B, rescan the modem on subscriber A, and, and see if subscriber A is, is now healthy, or vice versa, and, and you can troubleshoot yeah. that way. So there's different ways you can troubleshoot it, but um, the subscriber A, subscriber B problem is definitely one that happens out there where you know you can't assume that both homes have a problem. Um, but it's just, it's port-to-port isolation fundamentally where, yeah, this happens all the time and you just have to fix the, you have to find the home that has the actual issue. All right. Um, question three comes us, to us from Greg T. He says, we've recently expanded our plant to 85 megahertz. Lots of operators doing that. DOCSIS 3.0 modems work without issue. But we have a problem with DOCSIS 2.0 modems having a severely impaired channel just above 42 megahertz. How do we prevent the DOCSIS 2.0 modem from locking onto the 47.2 megahertz channel? Why does it even do this? The DOCSIS 2.0 modem is only spec to go to 42, point, for, to 42 megahertz. And what we show over on the right-hand side here is the DOCSIS 2.0 modem in-channel frequency response. So this is something we get from PNM. It's kind of centered right on 47.2 megahertz where it shouldn't be. We show the pre-EQ tap response here of the DOCSIS 2.0 modem. And anyone who's familiar with looking at a DOCSIS, pre-EQ, DOCSIS pre-EQ channel response, so this is the pre-equalizer in a DOCSIS 2.0 modem, they'll know that this is a completely saturated pre-equalizer in the DOCSIS 2.0 cable modem. So we, we see a, a pre-equalizer response in the DOCSIS 2 modems completely saturated. This, this DOCSIS modem is working very, very hard to stay online. And just not a good scenario. Um, based on the information from Greg T, we know this modem and probably the subscriber is not experiencing good upstream service, which in turn means they're not experiencing good downstream service. So John, your thoughts, what's happening here? Oh, we have a saying, if it hurts when you do that, don't do that. 
<laughs> so it's like, what, what's my answer? Uh, don't put a carrier there. You know, so in all seriousness, uh, we know that roll-off is 40, 42, somewhere in there. The modem has its own filter as well. And uh, if I'm going to do up to 85 megahertz, and I still want to do single-carrier qualm because there's some 3.0 modems that support 8-channel upstream bonding, just don't put a single-carrier qualm right near that region. Move it up to either get rid of it altogether or move it up to like 50 megahertz and above. Because from 50 to 85, you have enough room for four channels, four ATDMA channels. Four times 6.4 is like 25.6. So from 50 to 85, you got plenty of room to do four ATDMA channels. There's no need to put it right at 47 or 44 or 45. Just leave that empty. Make yourself a no man's land right there. Correct. And just be done with it. The other option is to get rid of the single carrier qualm, but go OFDMA. OFDMA. I mean, why not exploit DOCSIS 3.1 with higher modulation scheme? And then you're probably already deploying 3.1 modems for downstream anyway. So start activating the upstream. Get off the single carrier qualm and go to OFDMA. Yeah. And I think to ask the question, you know, why does this modem even do this to begin with? Because it's only specced to go to 42 megahertz, a DOCSIS 2.0 modem. And, it's a $20 uh, modem. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, to, to be realistic, though, manufacturers have to make sure that the modems perform to the specification, which means if they say, hey, this modem goes to 42 megahertz, they actually have time. to design the modem to go beyond 42 megahertz in order to meet the specification of 42 megahertz. So, and then we, we've seen this, you know, you and I have both been in, in development most of our careers, but to do, you know to design something to go to 42 megahertz, that means you actually have to design it to go well beyond 42 megahertz. So that modem ha- is able to go beyond 42 megahertz, probably maybe even up to 50 megahertz, and so it's able to lock to that 40. I think it was a 47 megahertz channel. Mm-hmm. Is able to lock on it, perform and and uh, communicate with the CMTS. The problem is that modem has an internal diplex filter that is at 42 megahertz. So now it's transmitting. If remember, we had another question about, you know, modems not performing well when they're locking on that 40 megahertz diplex filter. This is even worse. This modem's transmitting well above its internal 42 megahertz diplex filter. So it's bound to have lots of impairments. It's gonna have group delay. It's gonna have roll off, what we saw earlier, probably lots of uncorrectable code word errors. And that's where you have a very unsatisfied modem. If it's a subscriber's modem, it's gonna be performing poorly. If it's um, working in maybe a power supply as a transponder or a set-top box, for turning television channels, it's going to be performing really poorly. Then you're going to get bad channel changes, and that's yeah, I have another thought. Issues. And I have another thought, and that's this is like a off the wall. What's masking this and making it work and help it work is pre-EQ. Correct. Pre-EQ is helping it work, but you don't want it to work. So maybe you could test where you say, let's just turn off pre-EQ for that channel. Now, pre-EQ will help with group delay and tilt and all that. But in this case, you don't want it to lock on there. But then what happens if you have a modem that does support 85 and you don't have pre-EQ on that channel? Now you're losing the advantage of pre-equalization. So I was just thinking out loud how I could shut it off and the two modems would probably never lock because it would be so poor. Well, you can can exclude pre-equalization for 2.0 modems if you wanted, right? Based on the OUI. You can exclude on a on a per modem basis, but now it's going to exclude it for all the upstreams and you just wanted to exclude maybe that one channel. Yes. And, and that's, the other, yeah. that's the other ch- challenge that they run into with DOCSIS 2.0 modems because they're doing load balancing on the upstream. So sometimes these DOCSIS 2.0 modems will lock on lower frequency channels and they'll run perfectly well. Other times, these DOCSIS 2.0 channels, because they're load balancing across, will lock on this higher 47 megahertz channel, and then it's going to perform in an impaired mode. It's going to perform really poorly. So we, keeping that in mind. So I think it, when we go to our solution slide here, um, some of the solutions that we talked about, John, is the first one you mentioned, do not run SC qualms between 42 and 50 megahertz because that, that kind of will prevent the cable modem to going up into that extended range where it can still function. It you know, really shouldn't function there, but it can still function, but in a very degraded mode. Then the other one where we talked about is, you know, we're running in a, we're extending our plant to 85 megahertz. 
not necessarily so we can run SCQAM from 42 to 85 megahertz, but that's where we want to take advantage of placing our OFDMA channel starting at 42 megahertz and running that up to 85 megahertz. And then John, you talked about cable modem steering, and I, I think that's you know something that we've used in the past, but I'll let you elaborate a little bit more on cable modem steering and how that could benefit this solution. Part, part of the DOCSIS 2.0 spec is called, something called DOCSIS low balance groups, and there's one called DOCSIS restricted low balance groups. So you can tag modems based on the type, uh, downstream bonding capability, upstream bonding capability, filter capability. So the modem has to tell the CMTS its capabilities. And you can make a DOCSIS restricted low balance group and tag it for all 2.0 modems and say, all 2.0 modems are relegated to upstream 0, 1, 2, 3. So if a modem locks on upstream four, it will try to register. And if it's good enough, it will get through. But then the load balance will say, oh, I see that you just came up and you're a two-o modem. You're supposed to be on upstream zero, one, two, three. So then it will quickly move to upstream zero, one, two, or three. So you're steering the device to the frequencies you want. Correct. And I, and I think all of these solutions are going to, you know, can be used to ensure our, our modems don't run uh, above the diplex filter, above the frequencies we want. We have to be cognizant of DOCSIS 2.0 modems because they're going to be out there for some time. We're going to have them in set-top boxes, power supplies, legacy monitoring, um, and and probably some dedicated customers out there that just, they, they're going to hold on to their 2.0 modems and getting them out of their hands is actually quite difficult sometimes. So. It might be they still have them for EMTAs because they uh, they upgraded a 3.1 yeah. modem that doesn't have a built-in EMTA. We still have so them for no that as well. Maybe. Who's to say? You know, I thought about this. What exacerbates the issue and makes it worse is if you have modems off low-value taps transmitting 35 normally, they might be able to lock on the 47 megahertz. Even though there's an extra 10 dB of loss in that roll-off, the 35 now is 45. Yeah. It has enough range to overcome its internal loss and tilt with pre-equalization to then come back and still work. So one way I could eliminate that is if I use the flexible solution taps that I never allow modems to run at 35 dBmV. I have it designed properly that every modem, no matter where it is my plant, no matter what type of tap it is, it's at least 45 and above. I like right. I like 48 plus and minus 3 dB because I think that's a nice number to be running at. Yeah, for that modem to be transmitting that high in that 47 dB or above 42 range, it has to have extra transmit power in order to do that. So I agree with you. For the If all modems are transmitting in that ideal window, 45 dBmV, they're not going to have that power reserve in order to transmit above 42 megahertz, particularly when you it have a, to a modem. You could have another modem right off the first tap. It's a 23 dB tap, and that modem's already transmitting 49 so if it tried to lock on 47 megahertz and it had to overcome its internal loss of, because of the roll-off, and now it had to transmit at 58, it's not going to work. So it's going to fail properly Yep. because you want it to fail at 47 megahertz because you didn't want it to lock. But the lower value taps, the modems running lower transmit power, have enough reserve to overcome their own internal loss and roll-off. Indeed. All right. So our... Appreciate it if everyone would hit that uh, notification bell so you get alerts next time we send a podcast live stream out. And if you haven't already subscribed, we'd greatly appreciate it if you subscribe and hit the thumbs up bell if you like the podcast. Um, our last question comes in as why do we call a cable modem haystack a cable modem haystack? And I was sent this image which really kind of explains the confusion of why we, we call some of the things what we do in our industry, because this looks nothing at all like a cable modem haystack. So, um, and, and John, we'll, we'll talk uh, maybe about some of the other things, but this, uh, you know, the answer to the question is there's many types of haystacks out there. And this, I think, is gets into the, some of the confusion in our industry. So on the, on the left-hand slide here, I have, John, this goes back to your, uh, your original slide that you took of a true cable modem haystack and what it looks like in the upstream, which is a, I think you said it was a 6.4 megahertz upstream 
transmission from a regular SC Qualm cable modem transmission. It kind of looks, you know, like and, a, and that's like an FFT, right? Uh, normally, on an upstream spectrum analog, you see slivers because it is uh, uh, bursty. But we see the entire haystack. It's almost like you did a max hold, right? Right. But uh, some test equipment will do an FFT and just paste the whole thing. Correct. Correct. So, but it kind of looks, you know, sort of like a, I don't know, what's it look like? A haystack. <laughs> <laughs> if if you look the, at the two images on the right, these are these are more I think of what as an industry when we think about cable modem haystack or when we think about haystacks, these are more of the rounded haystacks you may see in a farmer's field where the hay's been put out for animals to eat in the pasture rather than the previous haystack, which is a a, a bundle of hay, a bale of hay. Or a bale of straw. I used to call are, it a Bart straw. Simpson head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like Bart Simpson. So I think that, you know, is it gets, we, ha, we use, as, as we were talking earlier, but before we started the live stream, we use so many different terms in our industry that can be really confusing to people. And I think you brought up daisy chain earlier. It's like, yeah. where do we come up with daisy chain? Yeah. Um, you don't so, realize the slang and the words we use in the industry until you have to translate them in another language. And they don't translate well. And daisy chaining was one of them, like daisy chaining equipment together. And it translated as flower, flower <laughs> garment or something. Uh, and, said, and so it was hard to explain what daisy chaining meant. The other one is piggybacking. And piggybacking is actually in the spec. You know, so it's kind of funny. We have a slang word that actually made it into the cable lab spec. Piggybacking is taking a cable modem bandwidth request and inserting it inside an actual grant. So it's not a contention request. It's going along with real data, which is unicast, which is timed. There's no collisions, but we call it piggybacking because it's hanging on. It's inside. But you think they would have came up with an actual term instead of English slang term of piggybacking. But it is what it is. Well, there's many. It's like we have token ring, bucket shaping, all kinds of we, – we use words that are like everyday words in, in, in our language and apply them to technology, I think probably so we can better understand the technology, describe the technology using layman terms. And, and that's why yeah. we probably use like haystack. You know, how do you describe what the shape of a cable modem upstream transmission looks like? Well, it kind of looks like a haystack. But you have to understand what type of haystack we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really, really important to understand that. So I think these are interesting questions that we get in from our listeners. And it's, it's good to talk about them um, because it, it just helps us all understand the industry a little bit better. So those are questions that I had for today. We have, uh, we have more that are out there, some questions we have in. From one for um, Amin. I, I hope I'm saying your name right, Amin. Um, thanks, thanks for the kudos there. You have one question. Why do we see a significant number of correctables on OFDM channels, even though the RXMER is in great range? I think this is a very good question because we we, we've talked about this um, sometime, sometimes uh, in, in some presentations when we're talking about how an OFDM, we've, or in DOCSIS 3.1, we changed the error correction from previous versions of DOCSIS. So DOCSIS 1, DOCSIS 2, DOCSIS 3, the error correction we used was called Read Solomon. When we moved to DOCSIS 3.1, and we'll also be using this in DOCSIS 4.0, the type of error correction we're using is called LDPC, or Low Density Parity Check. And Low Density Parity Check is one of the things in DOCSIS 3.1 that has allowed us to use the much more advanced um, modulation profiles, such as going to, to be able to go beyond QAM 256. So you hear us talking that we're using modulation profiles like QAM 512, QAM 1024, all the way up to QAM 46, and, and eventually we're even talking about going up to like 16K QAM modulation. So low-density parity check gives us the ability to do it, it, get at least 3 dB better performance than read error Solomon or then read Solomon error correction. So basically, low density parity check, when we find a bit error in a packet of data, so a packet of data goes from the modem to the CMTS or CMTS to the modem, and it gets hit by some impairment, and what low density parity check says, oh, I found that error, I'm going to try to correct that error. The same like what read Solomon would, it would try to correct that error once, but 
low-density parity checks really aggressive. They'll try to correct the error, correct the error over, and it's an iterative process. It keeps trying to correct that error until ideally eventually corrects that. And during that error correction process, it'll generate correctable errors. And so we see many correctable errors from LDPC until we eventually correct that error and ideally don't get any uncorrectable errors. So correctable errors are very common with LDPC and, and much more so than Reed-Solomon because it's part of that iterative process of correcting errors. John, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that to maybe correct me or, or uh, answer the question in more detail. So I brought this up and I, we should probably do a, a, a selfless plug of the presentation we just did Wednesday, right? We both were on a, a whole day panel or not panel, but presentation for the Penn Ohio SCT chapter. And I'm sure it was recorded and maybe they'll supply it to all SCT members. Um, but I know you talked about PNM, pre-equalization, all that stuff. I talked about DOCSIS 3.1 and I brought this up. I said, it's very common to have a hundred percent correctable fact. Yeah. A correctable means it's corrected. Back in the other old days, the single carrier qualm, we knew correctable was going to lead into uncorrectable. It's kind of like inevitable. Uh, I could start getting three, five, 10% correctable. It's getting worse and worse. Eventually, it's going to get so bad, and MER is getting so bad that it leads to uncorrectable. And that's what we care about, right? Drop packets. But with DOCSIS 3.1, the way it does the fast forward transform is very complex solution and signal, uh, and how it does time and frequency interleaving. And then this low density parity check, all of those things are making this complexity. Like if I have one bit in error, it makes it look like the whole block is in error, or it had to fix the whole block. Right. So it's uh, a little bit more complex. And I know Ron Raddick did a nice little write up on this as well, uh, and it gets a little bit too deep in the weeds. <laughs> but uh, expect 100% correctable. And I tell people with 3.1, don't monitor it. It's not worth it anymore. And most of the test equipment vendors are now taking it out of their thresholds, causing red flags and all this other stuff. Excuse me. Worry about uncorrectable FEC. Worry about MER and those things. There's, there's multiple things to look at to see that you're getting worse. Uh, on the upstream side, it's not quite the same because it's scheduled traffic and all that. But expect much higher correctable FEC on the upstream than a single carrier qualm. It's not going to be 100% like downstream was, but you're definitely going to see a higher percentage of correctable effect. So don't you can't really rely on it anymore for an indicator of plant health um, for DOCSIS 3.1. You can still use it for 2.0 and 3.0, but not for 3.1. Perfect. Good advice, John. Uh, got another good question here from 905 Cable Guy regarding port-to-port -port isolation question. What happens when port D and C are open or have cold cut drops attached. And I, I think this is pretty good here because um, we always recommend. Go ahead, Joe. Wait, you this take is it philosophically, first? it's always been: should I terminate taps or not? Or not terminate taps? To terminate. Should I terminate to taps and cut the resistor out? But then you're not terminating tap. You're just putting a, a security cap on there. It's right? no good at all. So, well, on on high value taps, you're gonna, we're going to do a high value to low value, right? Yeah, high value taps. It's not worth it. Yes. It's not worth putting the terminator. And, and so, and because where the you, value of the tap is so high, for signal to go out and reflect, it has to go through that tap twice, down and back. And it's not going to interfere with other people. Uh, although, let's, do, do you, um, on high-value taps, do you consider the neighbor? Do you, because we have port-to-port -port isolation. You have one port open. Because um, we, we go back to that open, concept. A nature of an open... Even unterminated port. I know. I'm thinking so about I, that because a a a cable hanging off is worse than. An and open that's where port. I'm going to go with this because, right? that, and that's the only reason that I would say we on, on a high value tap. Oh. Um, here, here you, it is. Here's my answer. <laughs> Reflective cavities, and you talk about cavities and reflections and impedance mismatches, right? There's no cavity there until you. It is. There's no length. There's no length of cable Correct. to reflect and come back. There's no cavity. So for the signal to go up and reflect off an open, mm -hmm. it's almost back in phase anyway because there's no distance. So Whereas if the signal goes through and down a coax and back, you have that reflective cavity that creates the standing wave. So my, my argument to you would be for a technician, where do you tell them at which value tap do I stop terminating? 
14. 14. 14 and below. 14 and below. So terminate everything 14 and below. And yeah. then my next question would be, just from a process standpoint, if if I have contractors out doing disconnects and they forget to disconnect yes. on a I high guess. value tap, they just cut it off because it's it's <laughs> it's much quicker to do that. Now we're we are so this gets to this this gets to um, nine oh five cable guys. Second question: We're leaving uh, stub cables on both high value and low value taps if we're not That's if ridiculous. we're not enforcing terminate everywhere. That's ridiculous and stupid. <laughs> <Just to laughs> well, what, what what happens? What's it cause? And you're caught. You're creating antenna, and that causes itself, standing waves. You're looking and suck at outs. the LRC, inductive, reactive, and capacitance. Yep. The way it's created, it's not. It won't leak. It's not going to leak. It might leak water. <laughs> it won't leak. It won't leak. But, but it, it will cause leak. standing waves, and it'll cause suck outs. Correct. But like I said, if if it's a port open, the distance is so close that if there was a standing wave it would be at like 100 megahertz wide or or yeah, maybe yeah, you, 700 megahertz wide likely would. there's no distance there's no cavity but as soon as you put a wire in there now you're creating mm-hmm. a little antenna so yes. now you have egress and you have ingress so some people make the argument that putting a resistor on a high value tap could cause more problems than good because if the resistor breaks now you just opened up the weather seal and you also create a little wire coming out of there, creating ingress and egress. I see. I, I so it's. Uh, I still say terminate everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and and you know that's what it comes down to is like, well, that's too hard for me to remember which taps. Just terminate everything and be done with it. Yeah. And if you have the terminators with the little weather seal, great. Even better. If you have terminators without the little O ring, then that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that goes everywhere for cables and connectors um so none of a cable guy says uh oh we've got french doors to deck that's a welcome french doors to deck we have not seen you before <laughs> um is there any reason to have an ofdma channel hit the cmts at anything other than zero i see minus six db receive power at cmts where i work um so and this is something, so John, I think we talked about this before because I've I played around with zero, minus six, and plus six dB MV um, and have seen varying results. Um, and, and my concept here is, do we want the OFDMA channel to drop out before the SC qualms? Do we want the SC qualms to drop out before the OFDMA channel? The goal of OFDMA is to exploit it to its, its highest capability, highest modulation, uh, best operation. It has self-healing properties with uh, graceful profile management, so it can change modulation on the fly for individual modems. Uh, why would I want to run at 60B lower with 60B lower MER? Correct. Granted, it is probably 60B more robust than a single carrier qualm, but I need that to run 1K qualm. I don't want to run 256 qualm or 64 qualm like a single carrier qualm channel. I want to run as high modulation as I can to get more speed. So the only reason why I would run it lower is I have power level issues, maybe. Uh, I have a dynamic range window where my OFDMA was at the high end and the OFDMA was being told to transmit at 50 and the single carrier qualm at the low frequency was transmitted at 40. That's a 10 dB tilt coming from my modem. If I had to manipulate the CMTS, I could change the OFDMA to say minus six, which would then make the OFDMA drop 6 dB and now my DRW is only 4 dB and not 10 dB, my dynamic range window. Yep. And that could be a scenario. I'm trying to finagle the CMTS to fool the cable modem's reporting of its dynamic range window. It's a, it's a, it's a funky game to play because <laughs> now you're getting a low MER in that channel. It's all so trade-offs. I would go the other direction. I'd be more like, um, I'm only doing 85 megahertz. A 3.1 modem has easily 5 to 8 dB more power than a 3.0 modem. And I'm only doing 85 megahertz. I'm not having power level issues because the 3.0 modems work. So the 3.1 modem is going to work better. Um, I'm going to tell my OFD maybe plus three. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep my, my single carrier qualms at zero, do plus three on my OFD may so I get better MER. Yeah, and eventually, when when most of our modems are DOCSIS 3.1 modems, we'll probably want to have our OFDMA higher than our SC qualms. So let our SC qualms drop off first and keep our OFDM, OFDMA online. Now, That's here's the kicker. Thing. All these upstream channels are going through the same upstream port now. 
Yep. It's not like the old days where an upstream port was one channel. Dedicated now an upstream port. port is multiple channels. <laughs> so you have a gain stage in there that has to do self-calibration on all these different channels. So I know on Cisco's side, we recommend and tell people, don't run more than 6 dB delta between channels on the same port. Or that self-calibration is screwy. Yep. So, hey, I missed a question here that I want to go back and uh, catch was, um, I'll get it up here, uh, Dylan. He says, why does that upstream ICFR look like that instead of roll-off? And I want to go back to my slides here to answer that. And um, I looked at that too, and then I think I figured out what it was. I missed that. So, so we're talking about here where we have a lot of group delay. So, and, and when we have a lot of roll-off when we're in a diplex filter. And, and so this is our in-channel frequency response. We're looking at the output of the cable modem. So the cable modem is compensating for the opposite of what the CMTS is seeing. So if we think about this, the CMTS would be seeing a lot of roll-off. It's going to have negative tilt due to the, the roll-off that the, that the diplex filter has. So the cable modem pre-equalizer, what it has to do is compensate for that negative tilt that the CMTS sees. So the pre-equalizer is going to create positive tilt as, it, as its output to compensate for the negative tilt that the CMTS was seeing so that when this signal arrives at the CMTS, it's going to be flat. So anytime... Think, go ahead. Go ahead, John. I think the confusion is this in-channel frequency response is at the modem, correct. not at the CMTS. Exactly correct. So we're seeing basically the modem do the inverse of what the CMTS sees so that basically the CMTS will see a nice flat response here. Yeah. And that's basically what's going yeah, yeah, yeah. on. So anytime and the way I explain it, it's like you're pre-equalizing or pre-distorting the modem signal to make up for the plant to hit the CMTS flat. The, the CMTS wants to see a flat signal. So if we did an in-channel frequency response at the CMTS, it would look flat. Correct. But the modem has to transmit this crappy signal to overcome the crappy plant to get a nice flat signal at the CMTS. Precisely correct. Is that the technical terms? I, well, we, yeah, we just, it, it's, it's just like uh, haystacks and piggybacking and crappy signals. These are all technical <laughs> terms. They should be baked right into the specification. <laughs> so um, French doors to deck. Um, so he's saying if the OFDMA oh, and, and uh, local trees 100, you're on fire. Thank you. Uh, so if the OFDMA is at 40 power level and the receiving at the CMTS is at minus six, Changing it to a receive at zero, you would see the power level at 46. Just making sure I heard that correctly. Yep. That's correct. That's exactly how you should interpret that. And then one other thing is there, and I brought this up during our uh, web Wednesday SCTE, um, the difference between 3.1 modem reporting and 3.0 modem reporting is 3.1 modems reporting 1.6 megahertz equivalent bandwidth. So if you take a 3.0 modem, it says it's transmitting at uh, 46 dBmV. You throw a 3.1 modem in there, that same channel, whether it's SIM carrier qualm or OFDMA, it's going to report instead of 46, it'll report 40. Right. So it will report 6 dB lower. It's still transmitting 46 in a 6.4 bandwidth, but because it reports in 1.6, that's one-fourth of a 6.4. Ten times a log one-fourth is minus six. So that's why you see uh, when you start reporting modem transmit levels, they could be a little funky when you upgrade from the 3.0 modem to 3.1 modem if you don't know what you're looking at. Yeah, and I think we covered uh, modem transmit levels like a show or two ago. So if you haven't, oh, yeah. uh, if you didn't catch that one, watch the reruns. Catch us on, in <laughs> syndication. So. All right, I think we've covered all the questions and all the incoming questions. So thanks so much in the chat room for the, uh, all, all the good questions you have. And uh, John, thanks for your content today. Um, everyone, it's been a good episode and we'll catch us next time. Thanks everyone for watching and tune in on our next show. All right, take care.